0: Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, and this is episode 184. Some quick house cleaning before we get started, in last week's episode, I offered my response to Sam Harris's controversial interview with Omar Aziz. Now, Sam doesn't need some obscure podcaster like me to defend him, but defend him I did. And one of the charges leveled against Sam by Omer that I tried to refute was that he's supposedly a chauvinist. I called the charge bizarre and went on to explain somewhat indignantly how I've never witnessed Sam Harris say or do anything the least bit sexist. And even brought up his repeated focus on the plight of oppressed women in certain parts of the Muslim world. Well, YouTube viewer CCD image reminded me that chauvinistic doesn't always mean sexist, and that it can pertain to someone who has bigoted views or a feeling of superiority towards another group in general. So I don't know if I made myself look like a dummy, uh, but in fairness to me, when I was growing up, the word was usually used in a context where it was virtually synonymous with sexist. Uh, But here's what uh, Merriam-Webster's has to say. Definition one, excessive or blind patriotism compared to jingoism. Uh, Definition two, undue partiality or attachment to a group or place to which one belongs or has belonged. Three, an attitude of superiority towards members of the opposite sex, also behavior expressive of such an attitude. But whatever the usage, I still don't think Sam's a chauvinist. Oh, and also I've been getting some feedback from people who like to listen to the show through earbuds or headphones that everything's panning to the left. And wouldn't you know it, that's because I accidentally had the pan knob in GarageBand set all the way to the left for about the last 10 episodes. So hopefully this week's episode sounds a bit better. Thanks to Crocoduck and Alicia for bringing that to my attention. And speaking of Sam, the first story on the agenda today involves his podcast, Yet Again. It's nothing as incendiary as his interview with Omer. It's more just me doing some lighthearted trolling. I've noticed that whenever I bring up the topic of circumcision on the show, it always garners a strong reaction. And it seems I can never win. When I sympathetically discuss the horrors of FGM in gruesome detail, I catch flack from anti-male circumcision advocates for focusing on female circumcision. And why I sympathize even a bit, With anti-male circumcision advocates, or maybe I should say less confusingly, people against male circumcision, I catch grief from the women's rights people who don't like male circumcision and FGM even being mentioned in the same breath. So when I heard Sam briefly express his thoughts on the subject during the most recent episode of his podcast, I mischievously thought it might be fun to play the clip on the show and see what kind of reaction it evokes. I think Sam has a fairly reasoned and balanced take on the issue, but if you disagree, please reserve your ire for him, not me. (laughs) But here it is.
1: My position on male circumcision, I've been strangely quiet on this topic, apparently. Maybe the fact that I'm a circumcised male has something to do with that. I think the analogy that people draw between male and female circumcision is a deeply unhelpful one. It is It does a lot to minimize the horror of what is happening to little girls throughout this world. There really is no analogy to draw there. I can't say that I'm a supporter of male circumcision. I don't think I would have circumcised a boy had we had one. Nor can I say that I've paid some price, psychological or otherwise, for uh, having been circumcised. So I think it's much less of an issue for me, though I do um, share. Hitches bewilderment at the fact that anyone thought this was an important thing to do to little boys. And my bias is certainly to be against it at this point, because it really is, apart from some tenuous health claims, it does seem to be a practice almost entirely anchored to religion. But don't be misled here. What girls are going through in countries like Somalia and Egypt bears no relation to the circumcision of boys. And it's very important to keep that straight in one's head.
0: So there's Sam's take on it. I'm tempted to add my two cents, but I'd rather keep your eye or focused on Sam. Ah, uh, what the hell. Why ignore my masochistic impulse? I was going to say that Sam's view on the subject pretty much mirrors my own. The only thing I'd add is that, although somewhat rare there sometimes are tragic incidents where circumcision is botched or goes wrong and the result can be horrific or even fatal. So even though FGM is much more severe and invasive, circumcising a male child is still nothing to be taken lightly. I'll spare you the tale of my own adult circumcision. I've spoken about it on the show in the past. If you feel like it, track down the uh, episodes. I did one not too long ago um, that has FGM and circumcision right in the title. And luckily, I survived the experience relatively intact, pun somewhat intended. The only thing I lost was my foreskin. And, you know, I try to be as honest as as I can with both myself and others. And I was very straightforward in the past on the show about how, for me, it was mostly for cosmetic reasons. And this might sound surprising to my European listeners, but in the U.S. for a long time, uh, male circumcision has been the norm. And unless you happen to be an American, Jew, or Muslim, it doesn't really have anything to do with religion. It has more to do with these notions about health and hygiene that can be dated back probably to the 19th century and seem to have their origins with these kind of quack doctors like the infamous Dr. Kellogg. And then also why I think it's so prevalent in the States has to do simply with conformity concerns. People want their sons to look like their fathers, or they're worried about their uh, kids getting picked on for looking different or something like that. And I grew up uncircumcised, and um, due to a couple of early experiences, I I was made to kind of feel self-conscious about it. If I could go back and change it now, I probably wouldn't have had it done. Not that I think I suffered too greatly, because I did have it done. I think whether or not sensitivity and sexual function can be impaired by being circumcised. I think that's still a hot topic that's being debated. I had read an article on the last episode dealing with this issue that seemed to try to imply that it didn't seem to really impact one's sex life. But I know there's people who are against male circumcision who feel quite strongly that, it's actually the opposite and it can impact um, one's sex life. And of course, this is talking about male circumcision. We all know that uh, a clitoridectomy or, you know, the, um, or female genital mutilation that involves removal of the clitoris is obviously going to affect one's ability to experience sexual pleasure. So I said I wasn't going to add my two cents, but characteristically, I went off on some long tangent or diatribe. And I'll probably catch hell for it, but hey, onwards. So this next one is a rather sad and disturbing story. It involves a Muslim shopkeeper in Scotland who was killed in what appears to be a religiously inspired murder. Now, you might be thinking, oh, maybe he was killed by some xenophobic Christian or something. No, he was killed by another Muslim, and it seems the quote-unquote crime that got him killed was being Muslim and wishing his fellow Scots a happy Easter. Here's the Facebook post that his murderer found so offensive. Good Friday and very happy Easter, especially to my beloved Christian nation. And that looks like Bismillah, Bismillah, um, which, if I remember correctly, is kind of like a Muslim statement or exclamation, meaning uh, in the name of God or Allah, something like that. And I think it's actually, isn't it in the Queen song, Bohemian Rhapsody? And uh, Freddie Mercury was actually a Zoroastrian, or at least was born to a Zoroastrian family, which always blows my mind when I think about it. But anyway, uh, the Facebook post continues, let's follow the real footsteps of beloved Holy Jesus Christ. Oh man, and I'm trying not to lay into him for <laughs> this religion-soaked message because, you know, his intentions were obviously good. But continues, and get the real success in both worlds. And I think he made a similar post through Google+. Good Friday and very happy Easter, especially to my beloved Christian nation. And this story caught my attention because I thought it was rather poignant how it seemed to demonstrate the worst and best of Muslim immigration in one story. On the one hand, we have this Muslim shopkeeper who seems to have recognized and respected the fact that the culture he was living in was predominantly a Christian-European one, and he seems to have been doing his best to assimilate, and in fairness, I don't know if he was first, second, or third generation. He may have even been born um, there. But judging by, uh, it was a very nice message that he wrote or typed, but it did seem like perhaps English wasn't his, his first language. But then on the other hand, we have a Muslim immigrant also not sure if he's first or second generation or whatever, who instead of assimilating and embracing the culture of his host country, was willing to kill another human being simply for wishing his Christian host country well. And I keep using the word Christian, and as a non-believer, I'm not trying to promote or defend Christianity. I'm just using that term to contextualize things, to emphasize the fact that we're discussing Muslim immigrants and their assimilation or failure to assimilate, into what are traditionally Christian European cultures. Although, thankfully, secularism does seem to be on the rise throughout the European world, especially in Scandinavian countries. And that brings up another point of concern, Will large influxes of observant Muslims into these secular Western nations start to tip the balance back in favor of religion, specifically Islam kind of a scary thought. But here's a little bit from a Huffington Post article uh, dated March 28th, so just a few days ago. Thousands of people from around the world have united to raise more than 86,200 pounds, or around 123,007 dollars, in a matter of days for the grieving family of Assad Shah, a shopkeeper in Glasgow, Scotland, who was brutally killed on Thursday. Shah 40 died from his injuries after he was stabbed in what Scottish police are calling a quote-unquote religiously prejudiced attack. A 32-year-old man has been arrested in connection with with the death. Both Shah and his alleged assailant are Muslim, BBC reported. On the day of the attack, Shah had posted a message on Facebook wishing his quote-unquote beloved Christian nation a happy Easter and Good Friday. Community members mourned Shah in two separate vigils over the Easter weekend in Glasgow's Shawlands district, where his shop is located. Hundreds of people came to pay their respects, including Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, it looks like. Hope I didn't butcher that. Maybe sturgeon as in the long spiny fish. And I know I shouldn't be joking, but I really do feel bad for the guy. But like I said, on the one hand, the story shows the best face of immigration. Someone that's thankful to be hit. I was gonna say be here, I'm not in Scotland, but I'm talking about immigration in general. You know, someone who's thankful to be in their adopted or, or host country. And who wishes the majority well, even though they don't share the same religion. And then on the other hand, it demonstrates the worst side of immigration and kind of embodies our fears about immigration. A person who refuses to assimilate and whose religious beliefs are so rigid, they're willing to kill for them. Scary stuff. So next we have a couple of clips from the most recent episode of Real Time with Bill Maher. I thought they were both really kind of timely and thought-provoking. And both clips have to do with Islam and extremism. And in this first clip, Bill is talking to Cory Booker, the former mayor of Newark. And Bill's trying to convince him that Democrats or people on the left have to stop being so politically correct and be willing to embrace phrases like Islamist or Islamic extremist or something to that effect. You'll, you'll hear for yourselves in a moment. Uh, but here's that clip.
2: So I know you're on the Homeland Security Committee. Yes. There's a horrible attack again this week in Brussels. Um, I know what Trump's message is. It's a horrible message. I don't agree with it. Uh,
3: I don't know what the Democrat message is, Democratic message is on this. What, what, what is it? Well, so first of all, I, 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 you know, I'm not, I don't wanna think about one of the great threats to our country through a political lens. I, I wanna think about what's the American message in all of this and how are we gonna defeat what we see as a determined enemy uh, that is doing horrific things, not just to the United States, uh, not just to Europe. I know we got, all, we got a lot of attention on, on things that happened this week, but just today. Uh, there were were people killed in Iraq at a soccer game, can't even go to a soccer game. In fact, ISIS has been killing more Muslims than they've been killing anyone else. And so our response has got to be what we're doing right now, which is taking their territory away from them, this ideal they have, this perverse ideal that they have of creating a caliphate, we're going to take uh, their land back, and we're going to win well, that war in that field, but we also have to disrupt their terrorist networks, and we have to counter violent extremism at home. And, and so, that's not a sound bite. But see, wait, you say violent extremism. Uh, I've said this before
2: on this show. I think the Democrats risk losing this election if they cannot put together the words Islamic extremism as opposed to violent extremism. Please just tell me that you recognize that it is a distinct threat much greater than any other violent extremist threat. You don't really think it's on the same order as the KKK?
3: Well, first of all, uh, Are you really
2: worried about the KKK?
3: Well, what I'm worried about is that You began that question by saying the Democrats will lose if. First of all, if the Democrats lose because of how they talk about uh, this extremism, then they've got more problems. Uh, um, my party right Maybe now... Maybe that's
2: their biggest problem. Well, I, Maybe I, that's what will lose the... Uh, if there's a terrorist attack, what if this was LAX instead of the Brussels airport? I mean, 45% of Democrats already, if you take Trump's name off his
3: proposal to ban Muslims coming into this country, agree with it. Democrats. Right. And so... Uh, Look, th- this is a threat like no other, and it's one that's that literally keeps me up... Like work, no other. ...working on like no other, but I also understand, and I'm not I'm not creating a false equivalency here, but since 9-11, we've lost 48 Americans, Boston bombing, uh, uh, and we've... And, and to a Christian walking into Planned Parenthood in Colorado, massacre, massacring people, but to cr- people Christians walking... But to...
2: Christians are not trying to get a dirty and I, and I'm not,
3: bomb. And I'm not saying... That is a false equivalent. But I'm not trying... I'm saying I'm not trying to create the false equivalency. I'm saying that when you say to me that this is the only threat we should be taught... we am not lose, saying fall, only. No, no, no. That we will I'm lo- saying it's distinct right. and different and bigger. And so Size matters. And what I'm saying to you is... That, <laughs> and, and what I'm saying to you is I, I am... As a, as a senator, spending an extraordinary amount of time focusing on that, but what frustrates me is here you and I are having a conversation when we pivoted off of Newark, but I've got kids with lead poisoning in the water in Newark. I've got uh, poverty, that sh- yeah. people working full-time jobs. Different issue. we got to and, and I agree. walk at the same time. And, and so uh, what, and what, what, and what I'm mean. saying to you is that I think what Americans are, Americans are hungering for is a vision in which... We can manifest our strength as a country by focusing on the, the whole panoply of issues. And if we... Okay, and, but and, 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 and I, fear is important and, to and, people. And and, if, and, I'm and telling fear-mongering you, is, is weakening to Well, it's we not
2: are. mongering if there's an attack. I mean, yes, of course Trump is fear-mongering. Right. I, I think... and Cruz, trying to up him this week on patrol Muslim neighborhoods... Uh, and, and, it, so it's, it's we, and so why
3: can't we play to that level where this is about a, a two minute soundbite no. as opposed to a sophisticated plan to defeat our enemy, not only abroad well, but the enemy when it manifests itself here at home Just say Islamic terrorism
2: I, Just I, say those words I, and you'll win the election. I, I, <laughs> Avoid those words and you're going to lose the election That's my advice. I, 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 and, and I hear you. I know you're not running but I've just, heard you mentioned as a VP candidate as a Supreme Court nominee, the next James Bond. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, they need a new most interesting man in the world. So (laughs) thank
0: you very much. Okay, so there's the first clip. I'm going to refrain from offering my analysis as hard as it might be to do. And I'm just going to move right on to the second clip, which is from, as I mentioned earlier, the same episode of Real Time. And this is Bill talking with his panel, and things get a little heated between him and Jennifer Granholm, also a Democrat and the former Attorney General of Michigan. So here we go.
2: All right, I'm going to continue with that discussion. It was the uh, first day of spring this week and we had a horrible terrorist attack i thought of the arab spring and i read this article in the uh, wall street journal sahab amari is the editor of a book called arab spring dreams and he says today the middle east is less stable and less hopeful than it was before the arab spring he mentions egypt yemen libya syria places that had arab spring uprisings we were all very hopeful at the time He said, at the height of the movement, I edited an anthology of essays by young Middle East dissidents. They described an Arab world where women and men were equal, blasphemous cartoonists were tolerated, and gay people could could live openly. He asks how those dreams turned into nightmares. And
4: so I would ask that to you. Well, I think uh, the last 40 years, the Middle East was either stable or had frozen instability for three reasons, one, Uh, is they could take a lot of money out of the ground. Two is... Oil. Oil. And it was expensive. And the United States, for the world, the United States, number two, was providing uh, a fair amount of security uh, for these countries and wanted to. And number three, despite the fact that they weren't well-governed, the people were pretty quiescent. They didn't have the tools and they didn't have the inclination to revolt. 2016, all three of those things, to various degrees, are eroding or gone. And so, I mean, whether you're talking about Obama or whether you're talking about Hillary or the Republican candidates, but, you can't tell me any of them have plans that are going to make this any better. The Middle East today is not something we're going to fix. It's much more like climate change, it, it's going to be two degrees well, or six degrees. It, it
2: seems like when there is an uprising, it gets hijacked by the religious nuts. I mean, this is what happened with the Arab Spring. Mean, it didn't start out as an insurgency that it became. Same thing with Iraq. We had Michael Ware here last week talking about it was an insurgency against the Americans, but it was secular, and then the religious folks hijacked it. Same thing in Syria with ISIS. Same thing in Egypt with the Muslim Brotherhood. How do we stop this? Were we kidding ourselves when we thought that there was something in an Arab country between the caliphate and a
5: police state? Well, Bill, one of the issues is that people on both sides of these struggles are religious. This is a part of the world where even the people who are secular are actually a lot more steeped in religion <laughs> than people in this country very who think of true. themselves as religious. You're right. So part of the story is that when you look at the societies where, think, you know, look at Tunisia. This is a country where you have more or less a decent settlement. Indonesia is a country where people were very worried about religious extremism, and now you basically have a functioning democracy there. And I believe that the real issue is there were some societies where the dictators wiped out all civil society there were no other institutions outside of the state. And then there were some where there were people who were able to start businesses, they were able to have real meaningful institutions outside of government, and those are the societies that today have a fighting chance. It's not just all about these societies are religious, these aren't. You have religious people fighting on both sides, both for decent, tolerant societies, and also who are fighting in the name of this Islamic barbarism you're talking
2: about. You were raised Muslim? That's true, yeah. But you're not practicing?
5: Uh, you know, I drink, I carouse, I do all of it. But uh, but I do, but But, I take it seriously. But
2: but I know, but you you do realize, I'm sure you do, uh, how how rare that is as a Muslim in the world, that you can openly say that and do that. You're lucky, you're an American Muslim. You
5: can drink, you can say, I'm not a Muslim. I mean, Bill, here's the thing to keep in mind. If you're looking at Brussels, if you're looking at these terror attacks, you know, two of the guys who were caught up in them, they ran a bar. These guys were involved in drug dealing and petty crime. You know, when you're looking at this disaffection, it's a sea in which a small number of religious extremists are swimming, but they're swimming in a sea of disaffection of second-generation folks who are living in poverty, and they're actually turning a blind eye. They're aiding and abetting this kind of extremism. It's a lot more complicated than religion. And if you limit it to religion, you're missing the fact that religion can partly be the antidote as well as the problem.
2: I'm not okay. limiting it to religion. I, I think there are other factors. It's other people who don't want to put religion in the stew. And, and it's a I, major and factor. And I agree with you. You've got to talk about it
5: frankly. It's definitely in the
2: mix. ISIS has a thousand names, but all of them have Islamic in them.
6: Yeah, So, no denying. so ISIS is a narrow and far extreme sect of the wide band of m- the Muslim religion, the Islamic religion, to... And this gets back probably to your previous conversation and the point that you've been making a lot, I think, on this show, is why not say Islamic terrorism? However, we've got a huge number of moderate Muslims, not just in this country but elsewhere, who don't like that term. And words matter. And so why not call it... If we want to ally ourselves with the moderate Muslims, Why not use the language they're suggesting we use, which is jihadism, and not broad brush an entire religion? Think think, think of what you're... Not broad brush an entire religion with a term they don't want.
2: But think of what you're saying. You're saying that somehow these folks are so combustible, that if we use the wrong word, we're going to nudge them over but into strapping if, on a suicide vest?
6: No, I mean, if you that are What does part that of say group, about the culture? You know, well, what does it say about, about us that we refuse to listen to the terms that they would like to be referred by? I'm not
4: an official, I've never been an official, I'm not running for anything. I'm certainly willing to say that Islamic terrorism is a problem and a unique problem and there are aspects of the religion that make it a unique problem, We're going to say that. But I also am very sympathetic and empathetic to President Obama when he, he knows that's true as well, and he refuses to use it because he understands that the overwhelming pull of the United States is to get us more sucked in into wars that we don't have good answers for. And the more sucked in we get, the more problematic, the more painful, the more cost in resources and in human lives. And he'd much rather spend time fixing a relationship with Cuba R- uh, r- rapprochement with Argentina, pivoting to Asia, For- than talking more we'll about Syria. Up. I'm with him on that,
6: actually. He, he- <laughs> Me too. He also recognizes, though, he recognizes that words matter. And that insulting a whole swath of people that come from 50 different countries and represent a billion and a half people is not a great idea when it's one small slice. But it's not one
2: small slice. You know, everybody talks about this like there are no numbers. Obama said, it's very important for us to align ourselves with the 99.9% of Muslims who are looking for the same thing we're looking for, Order, peace, prosperity. I love the president, but he just pulled that number right out of his ass. Uh, there are numbers. We had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, Rohil Raza. She is a woman who runs the, there she is, the uh, Clarion Project. Uh, she goes by the numbers. That's what her video was called. 53% of the population of 39 Muslim countries that were surveyed wants Sharia law. Um, Sharia law, death for leaving Islam, death for insulting the prophet or the Quran, stoning a woman to death for adultery, amputation for theft, whipping for missing Friday prayers or or drinking alcohol. Um, The numbers vary from country to country, but this idea that it's just this small problem, the reason why this is a unique problem, why I was imploring Cory Booker to say that, is because it is a distinct thread based on the size. The New York Times says there are 5,000 militant Islamic groups in the world, armies like Boko Haram and ISIS and the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Intent, they want to get nuclear weapons, Support from the local population. I'm not saying most people want to commit terrorist acts. I'm saying they have illiberal ideas that are sometimes in line with what the terrorists believe and Recent events well, no one's attacks?
5: denying. No one's denying any of this, but here's well. How, oh, well, yes well, They are well there, well, there are some people who are very foolish and dangerous to deny this I am very sympathetic to where you're coming from but here's what you need to keep in mind when you're looking at Muslims in most of the world, they are subject to the same dynamics affecting Christians and other groups, their secularization, okay? So the question is how salient is your Muslim identity? People that we call European Muslims today used to say they were Moroccans or they were Algerians or whatever else. Now you call them Muslims because when you polarize, when you say that being a Muslim is this, it means these things, you make it more significant for people who are on the fence. There are all these people who are on the fence who kind of are thinking that, you know this is not necessarily the most important thing for me. Maybe what matters to me is you know what kind of tax code i want or whatever else but when you focus on this then you actually create the sea i'm talking about in which a small minority of people who are violent swim in the sea of people who feel marginalized and disaffected
6: and what you want to they, do they, is shrink, the, it, sea. Right. Make make shrink right. the sea they make it you know i mean as the former governor of michigan we have the largest arab american population sure, outside dearborn. of the middle east right dearborn is 40 percent arab american if you bring it home Voted and the Bernie. people and they did they did overwhelmingly the people who are living here, who are living in the U.S., who need to be our allies in this as well, are offended by this broad brush. And in, in Dearborn, people are completely... These are facts. They're not... No, no what brushing. Telling, I, what I'm telling you, though, the, is that people... If people are offended that we are using... Islamic terrorism to suggest that all of Islam believes or acts in that way, I think, that's the I think problem. They should and be in, more offended finish. by the incompetence we're not of their all. leaders
4: than they should be by the fact that the U.S. says Islam or not. I really do. You well, we can't bomb these guys into submission, can I, can but ask can't a a different different question, question though, about issue. this. It issue. is not
6: the only issue, but if yes. you alienate people who we need to be our allies, then try- we end no, up endangering the United
2: to, States. This would get them more on our side. Uh, you know, we don't wanna alienate the people who believe in our values. We seem to be always right. getting out of our way to defend the people who don't believe in our values, like the Saudis. Why, why, why are they our friends? Well, why?
4: I think you've the seen from the Obama. Obama They're so upset fights. about They're Obama going fight. to
2: Cuba and standing there with Raul Castro, Saudi Arabia is our ally in a far worse dictatorship, look, with a Sa- far, used, Saudi
4: Arabia
5: far has worse done human rights as, record. Look, I, I'm not a fan of Saudi Arabia, but it certainly is true right. that they've done a lot to combat our enemies. And the enemy of your enemy is sometimes is your friend. It's not something that we're particularly happy about, but it's a reality.
0: Okay. Uh- All right, so there's clip two, and I'm going to refrain once again from offering my analysis, just because we're already at, at about the half an hour mark now. Maybe you guys can let me know what you think about um, those clips. You can let me know on the Facebook page. Uh, You can let me know through the comments section on the YouTube channel. Your interaction is most welcome. And with that being said, I guess uh, I'll call this episode a wrap. You guys know the drill. You can like the show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. You can subscribe to the show or rate it via iTunes. You can check out the archives going back to episode one on Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Just go to podbean.com and look for The Week in Doubt. If you want to support what I do monetarily, uh, you can use the PayPal widget on the Podbean page. There's all that famous alliteration. Or you can go to patreon.com slash Doubt and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month and quit anytime you want all right thanks for listening and until next week